2: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Afternoons with Mike right here on the Shepherd Radio Network. On the line with me today, a person that I've not met before today, and he's calling in. James Spencer is with the D.L. Moody Center, and uh, it is always great to talk to anybody from that organization. Welcome to my program, James.
0: Thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate it.
2: You know, I know that you're very involved in keeping up with your finger on the pulse, so to speak, on the culture that we're dealing with today. And we're going to be talking about something very important, and that's all that's going on right now. With the recent Dodd case, America is kind of in an uproar in a lot of different ways. States voting this way, that way. Some trigger laws have gone into effect, uh, really almost completely banning abortion, We're going to be talking about that because you have a lot to say, and I know you keep up with that. But before we do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Finding out about what part of the country you grew up in.
0: Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Central Illinois, small rural town called Carlinville, and uh, I grew up Lutheran. Uh, I was I went to a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, uh, for most of my uh, young life, probably up until high school, and then I started dating. Uh, the woman who is now my wife, and she attended a small country church, a little Bible church in uh, in a smaller town in Carlinville, Chesterfield, Illinois. And so uh, I had been raised as a in Christian environments throughout my whole life, but I really hadn't accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. That that happened a few years later after I went to college. Uh, I went to college and uh, had a really a lot of fun my freshman year. Um, but by the time I hit my sophomore year, I'd sort of burned out of all the fun things that college can can provide, and uh, and was truly really struggling with what I was going to do with my life, why I was here, what was my purpose, what was the point of all of this. And uh, again, my my high school sweetheart and my wife Tim uh, sort of drugged me to some campus crusade meetings, and uh, that's where I accepted Christ for the first time. After that, I you know I. Uh, I stayed pretty much in in Illinois uh, for most of my life. Uh, My wife and I moved up to Chicago. I completed an MDiv at Moody Theological Seminary, did an Mm -hmm. MA in Biblical Exegesis at Wheaton College, and a PhD in Theological Studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And I like to tell people it's probably the most uh, expensive discipleship process anyone (laughs) could ever have chosen to go through. It sounds like it yeah it it really was uh, that formative though for me, as I went through those various degrees and 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 did the academic study. I think it the, during that time, I was just very um, one of the guys who discipled me early on in my in my walk of faith, he said, you know you're you're too stubborn for anybody to teach you anything. You need to go to school and just figure this out for yourself. Oh, and man. so that was very much what my academic career was. It was me figuring out what it meant to walk with Jesus and to be his disciple. And so, uh, yeah, the longest, most expensive discipleship process. And, uh, yeah, so that, that's sort of my, my upbringing in the faith um, up to around 2012.
2: Now, with all that theology training, did you ever serve as a pastor of a church?
0: You know, I've been involved with churches in a number of different ways. Um, I've actually worked a lot with small group ministries and those kind of things, more on the discipleship end um, and mostly unpaid. Uh, so I've uh, often had the benefit of doing internships and those kind of things through my, my various uh, academic degrees where I could work with churches um, and didn't need to be paid. And so I've done those kind of things. But for the most part, I jumped into higher education uh, administration as my first full-time job.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, have always taught as an adjunct professor. Um, throughout that period. But uh, yeah, most of my my professional experience was in higher education, particularly online education, enrollment management and marketing, um, and then ultimately residential education and the oversight of faculty programs at uh, Moody Bible
2: Institute in Chicago. Now, you not only have studied at Moody, but you've written a book about the life of D.L. Moody, and I believe the title of that is Useful to God, Eight Lessons, From the life of D.L. Moody, Uh, that had to be a fascinating study for you, right?
0: It really was. I mean, I I think after uh, eleven years in higher education, what I found was that I would I just sort of burnt myself out. I think, like many um, young professionals who are just beginning their career, there's not a real strong sense of work-life balance, and so I was, you know, working really to prove myself, and I think to prove to myself that I could do the jobs that I was being, you know, given. And um, so I worked really hard. I, I was sort of a 24-7 at work kind of a guy, never stopped, never took a break. And uh, and that was really taxing over those 11 years. And so as I stepped away from higher education and then moved over to a Christian nonprofit organization, which I'm currently the president of, D. L Moody Center, it's actually a separate organization from Moody Bible Institute. We just happen to be affiliated with the same Historic person in DL Moody, mm-hmm. but as I stepped away from that, what I found was that um, in learning about DL Moody and reading some of his letters and papers that he that we have in our digital archives, uh, reading biographies about him and just his work, um, what I found was that I needed to remember what it meant to exercise authentic faith in all aspects of my life, and to really draw in and be a, a more a person who was more attuned not only to the study of God's Word, but to prayer, to uh, rest, to the sort of rhythms of life that could produce a more authentic faith. Mm -hmm. And so that book is very much uh, uh, the fruit of my own sort of internal journey of rediscovering what it means to really walk and live with God in a more peaceful and calm fashion uh, while still doing the work
2: that He's called me to do. You know, a lot of people that I've talked to over years, and I was in ministry for 36 years full-time, I know the uh, struggle that it was for me personally, but it's really not uncommon, is it, to have somebody like yourself that's as versed and as studied as you are really uh, miss out on the benefits of a regular prayer life in their life. Uh, That can be something that surprisingly gets left out of the day. Isn't that your experience as well?
0: It is, and I, I think it was um, – I wouldn't necessarily put it on the academics, although I don't think the academics helped. Um, I'm geared sort of oriented toward achievement. That's just sort of my personality. I like to achieve. And so um, what I, I think things get lost for me is that when I study and when I write and when I research, I feel like I'm achieving something. Mm-hmm. You know, when I teach a class, I feel like I'm achieving something. Um, when I implement a program, I feel like I'm achieving something. And so those, that achievement becomes sort of like, uh, and I don't mean this in a, a bad way, but it becomes sort of like a drug, it becomes the way that I sort of get my, my fix of enjoying life, of really feeling like I'm worth something. And prayer doesn't sit within that achievement paradigm, um, or at least it didn't for me for a very long time. And so now I've come to sort of rethink prayer and realize that, Hey, listen, prayer is crucial to achievement. And I've had to redefine what it means for me to be a success in life. I've had to redefine what it means for me to um, achieve for the Lord in life. I honestly think that's why the the useful to God, that language that really is drawn from many of D.L. Moody's works, useful to God is an interesting way for um, me to express what I'm feeling lately, which is prayer helps me become more useful to God. Yes, It isn't necessarily something that I do to to achieve something that I want, mm. but it does make me more useful to God. Ultimately, the more successful we can become, I think, uh, I'm sorry, defining success as being useful to God opens us up to those disciplines that are sort of odd and strange and don't always look like they're, quote-unquote, achieving something
2: within the world. I like the way you're expressing that, and a lot of people have said, you know, they feel the need to earn their way. And that's kind of another way of expressing it, feeling the need to somehow be good enough, if you will. Uh, And yet we know that from the grace of God, none of us are ever going to be able to qualify on that basis. And so I like that language that you're using about being useful to God in the context of understanding that it's really all about him and not about what we do, not about what we accomplish, not about what we earn.
0: That's right. That's right. It's so much about um, allowing the way I've been phrasing it a little bit lately is, you know, whenever I find myself um, walking right next to Jesus or just a little bit ahead of him, I know I'm at the risk of determining my own path. I really want to be walking behind Jesus and allowing him to lead me wherever he would like to go. Yeah, that's right. And so often when I was sort of pushed through that achievement lens, I was running way ahead of Jesus and I was sort of dragging him along. He became a resource to me rather than a ruler, and mm-hmm. um, that was, I think, a big sort of moment of, you know, that sort of big aha moment for me was that um, I was never doing bad things. I was doing I was doing good things, but I those good things had become something of an idol in my life, and I really needed to reorient so that Jesus was again back in the center of my life, that I was focusing on him, and that I was seeing him. As my Lord and Savior, not as you know an Almighty genie in a bottle that, if I I uh. rubbed right the right way, would grant me the wishes that I wanted.
2: I want to say thank you for your humility in saying all of this, because I think hearing uh, a person that is as studied and, and uh, as educated in theology as you are be this open and this real, and it's so. I believe uh, resonates with the hearts of just about every Christian that I know of. They struggle with this thing and it's so easy to fall back into kind of a performance orientation. So thank you for uh, letting us in on the fact that that too was a struggle for you. And even though uh, you would think, I I think a lot of people would say pastors ought to know better, right? Yet uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the the common tendency is, is to fall back into that, um, that thing of a rut of just trying to perform right, trying to achieve more, trying to do more for the Lord, and we miss out on the joy that comes in that personal relationship when Jesus is at the center. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you say.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. and I I think that, you know, it happens to people in all walks of life, but I would also say that leadership, whether it's pastoral or administrative or whatever, can be very lonely. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we tend to uh, think that, <laughs> you know, pastors should be sort of Superman or bulletproof or, or what have you. And then they tend to lean into that perspective that like, they don't feel like they can have anything wrong. They don't feel like they can be vulnerable or have faults. And that creates, I think, a, a real sense of loneliness.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And for me, that sense of loneliness was very much uh, articulated through my quest for achievement. Mm-hmm. Because for me to be worth something and to have people, you know, love me, um, and really, I think, to be worthy of God's love, I always felt like I had to be achieving something. And that's yeah. a very wrong-headed way to think of it. Um, but I—and, I, you know, I never would have articulated it that way from a theological or biblical perspective. You know, cognitively, I understood what I, what I, that what I was saying was wrong. Yeah. But ultimately, those patterns begin to get ingrained in your life. And so, uh, yeah, D.L. Moody's been a real refresher for me. Um, because he's he's opened up new ways for me to sort of be in the world and to remind me that, listen, God loves you no matter what you achieve and what you don't achieve, and our goal is really to be open for his use, to reflect his light to the world, and not to chase after
2: our own ends. You know, I was sitting in a conference one time led by David Pallison, and he made a statement about what we declare we believe and what we functionally believe— And the uh, real goal for all believers is to uh, kind of narrow that gap. Uh, We all believe things like uh, the grace of God. We say we do, but functionally we can often be found that we're not really believing it, that we're not really trusting God. And uh, making that functional line up with the the declared, that's the real trick, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh, You know, it's always that sort of fight or I think all Christians, is that we do begin to live into patterns that are more like what the world says, you know, we should be doing than they are like what God says we should be doing. And I think the the verse I almost always go back to is Malachi 3.10. Mm -hmm. Um, it's It's the verse where, you know, God says to the Israelites, bring all the tithes to the storehouses. Just test me, try me, and see if it doesn't work. And um, I think what he's saying there is not just, hey, it's good to tithe, so everybody bring their 10%. What he was addressing there is they have a strategy for trying to get themselves out of this mess and to achieve security, to have enough resources. And what it is that they're doing is they're withholding their tithes because they're saying, well, if we give it away to God, that's sort of a waste, then we won't have it. We won't have enough. And so we've got to do something different. What God's saying is, no, I know that's what it looks like. But if you give it to me, I'll give you more. Mm. If you just walk by obedience, there will be something on the other side of that obedience that you can't right now see, that you you would never even logic your way toward. I'm just asking you to do it, and trust me that I will give you everything you need. And I, and I think that that's sort of the pattern that um, I've that most Closely reflecting on it, as I after I've written the book and have just sort of tried to live out these principles, is that you have to break those patterns of the world and reform patterns that are aligned with something like Amalekite three ten.
2: Mm. My goodness, this seems like a, a, that's is must reading for every pastor. Eight lessons from the life of D.L. Moody, and you know I've got to say something. I am so grateful to have a man. who has your humility that is actually involved in the education of young pastors. And as they learn, as they get their degrees, man, to hear this from you, I feel like you've just liberated the hearts of so many of our listeners today when we are reminded of the grace of God that it is really all about Him and not about us. But our tendency, our, like you said, we can so easily make an idol out of something that's actually good in one sense, but if it's not centric on Christ, it can actually become something that we worship more than we do the Lord.
0: I agree. Yeah, yeah it's, been, it's been a real pleasure to work with you know, over the years, and I don't, I don't get to work with as many students now. Um, I do still teach, um, but for different organizations, and um, as I've worked with students throughout the years, I think focusing on character, focusing on humility, focusing on integrity has always been part of my teaching. Now I just feel better equipped to actually model that in yeah. all aspects of my life.
2: Well, that's wonderful. I'm talking today to James Spencer. He's the president of D.L. Moody Center, and he's written a guide that's going to help you uh, in these days that we're living right now, this post-Roe uh, climate that we're living in. So we're going to hear more about that when we return. This is Afternoons with Mike, and you're on The
0: Shepherd. Are you looking for the right franchise to open your own business? Green Flag Franchise has the experience and knowledge to help match your business plan with your goals and values. Is your business ready to become a franchise? Green Flag Franchise will help you explore the potential and benefits of franchising your existing company. For a free consultation and coaching, visit greenflagfranchise.com. That's
2: greenflagfranchise.com. Palm Beach Atlantic University, Orlando offers three distinct areas of study Here we are again with my guest for him today. This is James Spencer from the D.L. Moody Center. He's an author. He's an educator. He is leading this center. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're involved with there at the center.
0: Yeah, so the D.L. Moody Center is located in Northfield, Massachusetts. And for those who don't know, D.L. Moody actually was born in Northfield, Massachusetts and moved back to Northfield, Massachusetts um, after uh, some of the work he did in Chicago. So D.L. Moody kind of moved around a bit between Northfield, Boston, and Chicago, but ultimately ended up and lived most of his life in Northfield, Massachusetts. Um, he, he really moved back to Northfield. Um, his wife wanted him to have sort of a base of operations where he could come back and rest after his evangelistic efforts and those kind of things. But uh, true to Mr. Moody's character, he couldn't stop working. And so he founded a school, a Northfield seminary for girls. Um, It was more like a boarding school on this property that we're on in Northfield, Massachusetts. And then he held things called summer conferences. And the summer conferences, he would call Christians of a variety of different stripes to come to Northfield, Massachusetts, to pray together, to study the Word together, to worship together, and to discern what the Holy Spirit was saying to them together. And we at the D.L. Moody Center exist really to echo his call to Christians, to pray together, to worship together, to study together, and to listen to the Holy Spirit together. D.L. Moody believed, as we do, that when Christians get together and do those four things, at least those four things, God will do great things through them. Wow. And so uh, one of the great stories about uh, D.L. Moody's ministry there on the Northfield campus is, you know, the student volunteer movement. He held a summer conference for a lot of young college-age students they came together in prayer, worship, study, and discernment, and ultimately decided that they wanted to send college students out onto the foreign mission field. And they sent somewhere around 20,000 uh, college-age missionaries out into the world over the next several years based on what happened at the you know, Moody's conference. And so we really want to—we really exist just to do that. So we, we hold events on our campus. Uh, on our property in Northfield, Massachusetts, we have a beautiful 2,300 seat auditorium um, that's still very functional. Wow! And, uh, that's huge. It when, when, <laughs> oh, it's unbelievable. Um, the stories about it—you know, DL Moody built this to house his summer conferences, and people thought he was crazy. And uh, by the time it was all said and done, there were people who would stand outside the doors to listen in because there wasn't enough room mm-hmm. in the 20 seat auditorium to house them. Mm -hmm. so we still have that we have a beautiful western massachusetts property and then we're also expanding some of that work into our online campaigns we we do a a campaign called go dark shine bright where we call christians to come together take 10 days off of social media for prayer and study and then to take 10 days after that 10 day break to go back on social media and proclaim the gospel to their their social networks Mm -hmm. and so we're trying to find ways to expand D.L. Moody's mission of, of bringing people together. We think of it in terms of challenge, convene, and proclaim. Uh, how can we do that both on-site and online? And that's what the D.L. Moody Center really does.
2: Now, when I hear all of this, James, that you're doing this up in that area, the northeast part of the country. And that seems to whatever I think most of us in the South, we just don't think of of that area as being a bulwark area for revival or evangelism. But, you know, I've heard jokes about the the Northeast being called the frozen chosen. It's it is it is something that where it's not typically thought of as a, a hub for revival. And yet what you're describing sounds just like that, like a lot of people are really coming to know the Lord in a deep, personal, and really intimate way right there in your area.
0: Yeah, and what I find interesting, I, I had the same perception when I began working for the D.L. Moody Center, was that, you know, New England was really recalcitrant to the gospel. Um, you know, they'd heard it all before, and so there's a lot of in- inoculation that had taken place, and I think there's some truth to that. I, I do think, you know, that um, the New the New England area is a more "Quote unquote post-Christian sort of environment
1: yeah, where right.
0: um, people are are far less interested in spiritual things and particularly in Christianity. At the same time, uh, what I had what I found that I had sort of forgotten was that the church tends to thrive uh, under pressure, <laughs> and yeah, so right. uh, yeah, what you find is that you know the the more pushback." Uh, faithful Christians get about their Christianity the bolder they proclaim it. And so when I moved out and and started working for the D.L. Moody Center, what I found were 10-year prayer movements that have been going on in different churches around the area. You see, you know, sort of more spirit-led revival happening in small pockets around New England. You see small discipleship movements happening, and it's the church preparing for revival in these areas. And so we have found that uh, while, yes, the broader context is difficult and challenging, um, that there are a faithful group of Christian workers who are just embattled, but, you know, still in the fight and that are doing the right things to bring about revival and change in the area that we've been able to plug in with, partner with, and we'd like to think contribute to um, as they seek revival with us.
2: Oh. That is so exciting to hear and to realize that all of this came, you know, from the heart of a great man of God that has served us in more ways than we can ever imagine. And you're absolutely right when you say that I would have thought that the bulk of his life and the bulk of his ministry would have been somewhere centered around the Chicago area because of that's that's kind of what we all attribute. We carry oh, sure. the Moody Bible Hour, or the Moody Church Hour, on the weekends right here. And of course, the yep. longtime uh, pastor there, Erwin Lutzer, uh, he's been on my program yep. before I met him a number of years ago. He's so delightful, and what a wit he yeah. has,
0: huh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Erwin Lutzer's on our board of directors at the D.L. Moody Center, and he's fantastic. Um, But yeah, much of Moody's work, even when he founded um, the Moody Bible Institute, he was not living in Chicago at that time. How about that? And so he founded Northfield Seminary for girls, Northfield Mount Hermon for boys, then what was then called the Chicago Bible Institute, and then sort of swung back around to Northfield and did the Northfield Bible Institute, which used to meet in a large hotel during the off season. And so he had a lot of different organizations going. It was amazing. It, it's sort of amazing the scope of ministry this man got done in a relatively short life. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there are estimates that say he reached 100 million people, preached to 100 million people. And you just think about that in a time when, you know, you're riding trains back and forth to different locations to get to Great Britain. He had to take a shift. Um, You know, there's no planes, trains or automobiles
2: and there's no Um, Internet or anything like that.
0: That's right. He very much spearheaded the publishing movement um, because he was trying to get the word of God out to people who couldn't otherwise afford, um, you know, the books and things that were being published at that point. And so he really fixed a lot of things and set a lot of things in motion that we would uh, we kind of tend to take for granted today.
2: You know, when we think about Caleb in the Bible, I when I hear the story of D.L. Moody, he reminds me a lot, and I, I wonder what your thoughts would be on this. The description that's given of Caleb in the Bible was that he was a man of a different spirit. And, you know, when we think about D.L. Moody and these great leaders, people like that, that seems to describe them, doesn't it?
0: I think so. I mean, you know, again, going back to sort of the characteristics that D.L. Moody exhibited in his life, and Useful to God, the, the book that I wrote, um, was really based on a book written by one of Moody's contemporaries, uh, R.A. Torrey, who would go on to be, I think, the founding dean of Biola University. Um, and he wrote a book called Why God Used D.L. Moody. And in that book, he talks about these seven of the eight characteristics that I include in Useful to God. And I think that it just became apparent to everyone who met Mr. Moody, and it isn't that he was perfect, it isn't that he didn't make mistakes, but you saw him trying to surrender his entire life to God, and you saw him taking seriously the actions required to do just that. Wow, yeah. And so he was not a, you know, D.L. Moody was not an educated man. He w- he grew up in poverty, um, probably had no more than five years of formal education, Uh, There are these fantastic stories where when he's first attending Sunday school in Boston, he has trouble actually finding the books of the Bible because he can't read well enough to find them. Um, Stories of him sitting with children and sort of not being able to read the full parable of the prodigal son. You know, this was not a well-educated human being, but he was authentic in his faith. He was a voracious learner, and he was so earnest in the way that he expressed the gospel and expressed what it meant to live the Christian life, that he won over people of, across the spectrum of education. Um, there's a fantastic story of him meeting with, the, uh, with students at Oxford, and uh, you know they first see him coming, they're like, well, who is this sort of country bumpkin coming from Northfield, Massachusetts? No education, no real credentials. What have we to learn from him? And by the end of it, they were all on board with Mr. Moody, because he just won people over with the sincerity of his faith.
2: Man, I love that. that,
0: Yeah, it's just fantastic. So I think you're right. He had a different spirit about him. And I think uh, so much of it was just encapsulated in his desire to have the Holy Spirit empower his life, to have Christ reflected in his life, and for him to take second place. Um, I often talk about him being overshadowed by the gospel.
2: This is good stuff, man. (laughs) To everyone listening right now, whether on air or on our podcast, I believe you're hearing a real treat and uh, something that brings real hope. I mean, even his life, like you said, it, it just goes to show that it's not the education, it's not the degrees, it's not the years you spend in theological training. All of those things are wonderful and they're important. And obviously they've equipped you in your life, James, but it's really at the end of the day, it just swings back. It's all about the Lord. And that's really what we never want to lose. And yet that cognizance of that very thing is so easy for us to misplace and to live our lives forgetting about and, and that's what I love about our chat today. I can tell that you're a guy that really works to keep that in the center of your own heart.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's been, a, I think it's been an interesting struggle for me because as you say, I, I think what I've had to come to is, you know, the essence of discipleship. Um, when, when Christ tells us to go, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all he commanded. I think it's very easy for us to mistake learning with learning to obey. Mm. Mm. And for me, I went through a lot of my, my education. I enjoyed learning. But I think just like anybody else, um, we tend to shy away from learning to obey. <laughs> no matter yeah, how much right. we like learning, yep. there's a sense in which we just don't really want to learn to obey.
2: <laughs> you know, I keep getting the sense, James, that you're talking to a lot of people right now who are glued to what you're saying and the hope that you're bringing. So I am so grateful for you and and just even the way you've opened up and let us see a little bit about your life and what God has taught you and what you walk in. That's so helpful. Mm-hmm. I know we've we got to get to this. This is something that I want to get to. We're living in a sure. time we've seen this massive event take place on June 24th. And a friend of mine wrote a booklet about what is life going to be like post row and that's kind of what you've done in this uh, guide that you've put out to discuss how we're we going to live now uh, in this time that's post-Roe. What is your guide? Share a little bit about it. Sure.
0: So what we wanted to do was just sort of give Christians a sense of, um, I don't know, direction and framework for thinking through the post row versus wave world that we are now living in and I, I think really the the heart of it was just this um, when I've been involved in certain conversations about the pro-choice versus the pro-life movement um, you know what I what I found striking was the number of pro-life Christians that I would talk to who seemed willing to demonize the pro-choice folks mm-hmm and um, often what I walked away with was we're obsessed with saving lives, but we can care less about saving souls. And I think Whoa. that as we look at these 20 questions on abortion, Christians don't get to make that choice. Now, I want to be really clear about that. We don't get to make that choice. I am not saying that we should privilege saving souls over saving lives. We don't get to choose. We have to do both. Mm-hmm. We have to save lives and save souls. And that means that we need to approach people who hold a different persuasion of this than us, um, usually on the pro-choice side, but often on occasions, um, you know there are Christians who do hold to pro-choice. But I think we have to recognize that we need to approach them with compassion. We need to approach them as lost souls and uh, not people who are just hell-bent on killing babies. and And I think that that's just a crucial aspect of what we' we need to emphasize now that we are on the other side of Roe v. Wade.
2: Mm. The 20 questions that you've written, uh, give us number one, if you will.
0: Oh, sure. Um, the first one is about the Great Commission. And so it's it's really just a question of what is the Great Commission and what bearing uh, does it have on the abortion debate? And this is really, the, like I said, the heart of what I think we need to really consider is that we're not put here, we're not commissioned to um, change or the way I like to say it. We're not here to fix the world. Um, There's a high likelihood that when I leave this earth, the world is still going to be broken. And I think that's just the way of things. But what I want to do when I, as I move and breathe in this world, I want to be about the Lord's business of being and making disciples.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And so, as I as I look at the Great Commission and I say, this is what Jesus left his disciples with. Um, it's at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 28, 18 through 20, and he tells his disciples to go and make more disciples, <laughs> you know, baptize them and teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And it's so crucial to me, um, and it relates to the abortion debate, because it reminds us that our primary task is to be and make disciples, ah, that's not great. to solve the social ills of the world.
2: Yep, not just in activism, but to be disciple makers.
0: That's right. At the end of the day, and, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier. We can't become so obsessed with saving lives that we lives that we forget to save souls. Hmm. Part of what we do in discipleship is we encourage those who are lost to come into the fold of the faith, and from that point then we not only have, you know, sort of the normal arguments and, and, you know, debate points that we can talk them through, they now have the Holy Spirit within them who is going to help convict them of all things.
2: Wow. Hold that thought right there. We're up against a break. This is Afternoons with Mike. My guest today, James Spencer from the DL Moody Center. We'll be back with him in just a moment. E.C. Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, If you've considered the natural beauty of a wood floor, then go with a winner. Ability Wood Flooring has been a trusted source and family-owned and operated since 1950. Ability Wood Flooring is voted best of the best and are featured on A&E's Zombie House Flipping. Ability proudly works with Florida's top builders, winning many awards in the Parade of Homes. Get a free design consultation today. AbilityWoodFlooring.com This has been a really delightful chat today with James Spencer. Uh, He is the leader, the president of the DL Moody Center. And located up in Massachusetts, not like what I would have thought. Uh, Somehow I missed that when I did my early reading. I I think I made a massive presupposition that you were in Chicago. Instead, you're in uh, Massachusetts in this beautiful area of the world, New England. Although I've never been there, I've seen videos (laughs) and movies. I've never been farther than New York, Buffalo, New York. I think that's about as far north as as I've ever gone, uh, that part of the country is, is your home and you obviously love it. And you've given us this gift, James, in this, uh, this guide that's going to help so many of us and remember that most important statement. And I'd like you to repeat that about the importance of not just, uh, you, you talked about the importance of saving souls. Give us that statement again.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll read it from the, the- the part that I put in the guide, so I think I I put it kind of well here. And I just say, protecting the unborn and saving the lost must go hand in hand for Christians because we don't have the luxury of choosing who gets to hear the gospel. We have to do both. We have to protect the unborn because that's the right thing to do. It's an appropriate um, way for us to work out our discipleship in this world, but we can't neglect saving souls. Which means that the means by which we go about protecting the unborn shouldn't be uh, intentionally alienating those who stand on the opposite side. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, this guide that we put together, really, our desire was that you know we would help Christians see that um, at the end of the day, there are a lot of people who can advocate for pro-life. There's a lot of people who can make the arguments bio, you know, the bioethical arguments um, for or against um, when a when a when a uh, when life occurs in the womb but christians are the only people who can proclaim the gospel of jesus christ Mm -hmm. we're the only ones who bring that message we are the only ones who know it and if we're not doing it it won't get hurt and so we've really got to take that seriously we're the only people who can convey christ to the world and so we shouldn't shy away from these political debates. We shouldn't, uh, you know, we shouldn't just step away from social concerns. Not at all. But as we engage them, we have to be reflecting Christ and proclaiming His gospel because we are the only people who can do it. Uh, it's
2: powerfully so I'm said.
0: I hope, yeah, I'm hoping this guy will arm Christians with the with the answers they need and the and the framework that they need to really do just that.
2: Well, talk a little bit more. Give us another uh, kind of peek. Into this guide, if you will.
0: Sure, um, you know I think one of the one of the important ones here, and uh, and and it's a little bit it's, it's a little bit of a of an offshoot. But what is it about? How is it that Christians should discern truth on social media? Mm. Now, I know that may not immediately uh, connect to the um, abortion debate, but I think it really does. Because what what we've found as we've worked more and more in the area of social media at D.L. Moody Center is that the world is getting increasingly proficient at telling stories that deny and diminish God via social media. Wow. And so we get a lot of misinformation. We get a lot of uh, dehumanization on social media. And as our perspectives are framed and shaped by the social media with which we interact, if we are not discerning, please notice I'm saying if we are not discerning, not it, not if we are even on those platforms, I'm not advocating for everybody to get off social media, but we have to be discerning. We have to learn to discern the information that we're getting so that the other side is not, you know, painted as demons. That's not that's not the right way to go with it. If we're not seeing the other side as painted as lost humanity, who are just trying to solve problems of brokenness that they don't really have the tools to solve, we've missed something. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll miss opportunities to share the gospel. And so especially with the abortion debate where we have such a, um, a clash between one side and another where things tend to get very dichotomous very fast um, and really contentious really fast. I think it's wise of us to sort of think through and how do we discern this truth on social media? Where do we really go to get true information about what it is that we're seeking? How do we form a perspective that's going to be commensurate with the gospel?
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's those type of questions, as well as you know, just normal ones, like what was the ruling in Dobbs B. Jackson? I think we're starting to see some of that work out as we see different states you know, create different laws. Um, we just had the big Kansas decision um, here recently, um, you know, where you know the Kansas citizens are trying to vote to amend their state constitution. Ultimately, it doesn't pass, but um, different states are working this out in different ways. And so what we're seeing is that Dobbs v. Jackson, while we should celebrate it, is not going to be the end of the work that we need to do in this area.
2: That's right. I had one friend say that uh, the, the day that this would pass, which now it did— that is uh, not the end of the pro-life movement. He said it's only the beginning.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think we're seeing it work out. I think what we're probably, what we should be seeing, one of the things we should be seeing is that this will never be solved through leg- legislation completely. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and I think the Kansas decision is actually a great example of this. Um, you know, Kansas, for all intents and purposes, is a conservative state. And uh, for them to reject this amendment that just went through is telling, Um, and I think it's telling on a number of different levels. So what I would say is that, you know, we should be looking at those kind of aberrations, those surprises, and saying, you know what would really solve this issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right. It's going to be the, the regeneration of individual human hearts and the collective witness of God's people that is needed to truly demonstrate what it means to have a sense of sanctity of life. The laws and the politics are important, and they are useful, and we should not abandon them. But the reality is that they will not solve this problem.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about Caleb earlier, and the the, the man of a different spirit that he is. And what you said mm-hmm. reminds me of another character in the Bible that we can easily be like, and that would be Jonah, when God gave him the call to go and preach to Nineveh, he didn't want to do it because there was like a dislike. I mean, a strong, maybe some people would say it could even be a hatred that they have for these people that are pro-choicers, if you will. We all know they're really not pro-choice. They're only about their choice, but that does not give us this uh, license that I think a lot of us take and we begin to almost hate those people, and we want to have happen to them, I believe, what Jonah wanted to have happen to Nineveh, right?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, ultimately, if we were to stop talking with or give up on every human being who wanted to go their own way, as opposed to following God's way, we would not be talking to anyone. Mm. Uh, At at the end of the day, this issue is contentious in part because we have very strong emotional feelings toward the results that come from abortion. You know, we do not want to see life ended, and especially innocent life ended in the way that it is an abortion. But at the end of the day, um, the basic dynamic is just this. People want to do what people want to do, and they would prefer not to listen to God. They don't want to follow His way. They just want to follow their own way. That's basic sin 101. Mm -hmm. It is. So we really have to recognize that often when people are doing that, they're working from a deficit. They don't know what possibilities God can provide. And so when they don't know what other possibilities God can provide, they become pragmatic and do what they can to alleviate what they sense to be the threat that they're facing.
2: And you know, in a real way, that, that brings you right back to the book you wrote on the life of D.L. Moody. Uh, very much. Very much so, because again, what, whether we realize it or not, we've tried to now justify our actions based on what we think and what we feel, rather than what the Holy Spirit is is leading us. And he's always, you know, when I think about the, the life of Christ, when he walked, he wasn't moved by uh, problems. He wasn't at, at, like that. He wasn't moved by uh, by the the kind of issues that can happen when it's storming on the boat out in the middle of the lake. But what did move the Lord was people. He was moved right. with compassion. And we need that compassion, don't we?
0: We definitely do. And I mean, I, I think there's, you know, Jesus sums it up really well when he says, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will come to you. He's talking there about, you know, the provision of food and clothing, those kind of things. But I think we can broaden it to the other anxieties of life. And so what Christians really are called to do is just to focus on the kingdom, focus on doing what is, what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and, um, you know, demonstrate the sort of blessings that God can bring into our lives simply by doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: hopefully the world will see that and ultimately wonder, why is it that Christians are so strange? And, uh, and they'll be asking that question in
2: a good way. In a good way. I'd love for them to come back into the doors of our church buildings and make that declaration that we read about in the Corinthians where they fall on their knees and they say, God is in this place. <laughs> that would yeah. be it. May they encounter yeah. God and not just... Our, our excellence in holding a service. That's, that's for sure. That's what we need. James Spencer has been with my guest today. We've got just enough time. James, this uh, guide that you've written, it's called 20 Questions, Christians, Abortion, and the United States. Now, that is a wide scope. It's going to take more than even this one program could even delve into. But how can people get a hold of this guide?
0: So it's available for free on uh, the MoodyCenter.org website. So it's MoodyCenter.org backslash 20 questions. And you can type in 20 questions as the number 20 or the, you know, 20 as T-W-E-N-T-Y. But it's MoodyCenter.org backslash 20 questions. And like I said, it's available for a free download there on the site. And uh, hopefully it will be helpful to uh, everyone who goes and, and grabs it.
2: That's awesome. And thank you for taking the time out of, I know what has to be a very busy schedule, a jammed up calendar, but you've done this so willingly and man, you've just peeled back your own heart and let us see your love for the Lord. And I, I just feel like, man, I've been blessed by your humble attitude. So I say, thank you very much, James.
0: Well, I very much appreciate you having me on and, uh, would uh, love to come back sometime but this has been great so thanks very much
2: well you got it james spencer from the dl moody center my guest today and friends we thank you for joining us here on afternoons with mike